The information provided in this presentation and during this webinar should not be construed as legal advice. Attending this webinar does not constitute or create an attorney-client relationship between you and Spillman Thomason Battle PLLC or any attorney associated with the firm. Material distributed during this webinar is done so with the understanding that the author, publisher, and distributor are not rendering legal or other professional advice on specific facts or matters and, accordingly, assume no liability whatsoever in connection with its use. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, thank you for joining us today. Um, please, please, please message um, Pamela either through the chat or question function if you have any trouble hearing us. Um, as is expected, um, Eric, Megan, and I are not all in the same place today, but we are all happy to be on the line with you. Today, um, we are going to talk about considerations that employers should be mindful of as they are contemplating whether or not to mandate a COVID-19 vaccine. In terms of where we're at with the vaccine, um, you all must have read the news and seen that Pfizer has been approved and its initial doses have been distributed throughout the country, including throughout our footprint. Um, my Facebook feed has been filled with photos of um, healthcare personnel receiving the vaccine at, at hospitals in and around our footprint. Um, Moderna is likely to be approved, if not by tomorrow, then early next week. The FDA advisory group who um, considered the Pfizer vaccine is actually meeting as we speak and will vote today whether or not to approve and or whether or not to recommend for approval the Moderna vaccine. Um, they similarly recommended approval of the Pfizer vaccine on one day and the next day the FDA went ahead and authorized the Pfizer vaccine for emergency approval. So it would not be surprising to see an approval from the FDA on Moderna tomorrow. You see on the slide here, a mention of the AstraZeneca. Um, that is lagging substantially behind the Moderna and Pfizer um, drugs. What we expect there is to see that their trial is not likely to conclude until late January. And then um, if you've looked at any of the data, their efficacy results appear to be somewhat less effective than the Pfizer and Moderna, which are 95 and 94 percent effective. So um, continue to keep an eye on these, but it looks like we're going to have two main contenders in the marketplace here any day now. So as we talk about, um, and you can go to the next slide, as we really talk about what this means um, when we say that there are vaccines out and available, um, what we really need to focus on is what are the priority and timeline for distribution? The reality is, is that by January, there's only gonna be about 22 million vaccines out there and available. Um, both the CDC and states have guidance out there to suggest um, who should get the vaccines and in what order. As you can see here on the slide, the CDC has unsurprisingly recommended that healthcare workers and those living and working in nursing homes and long-term care facilities be prioritized first. While the CDC guidance is not going to bind the states, um, many states have developed their own draft plans for distribution. Um, I was looking at the Virginia plan earlier. It's probably 70 or 80 pages long and, and explains a phased approach for how they're going to distribute the vaccine. Similar priority plans are available for all of the states in Spillman's footprint. That's at least as far as we have confirmed written plans. And what those plans really tell us is that who is going to get the vaccine first are healthcare workers. From there, it differs a little bit, but you see um, priorities for long-term care, nursing home, nursing home workers, and their um, um, people who live there, um, those at high risk of developing COVID-19 and or having bad outcomes. But I think what that really tells you is that it's going to take a while before there are vaccines um, available for everyone. There was an article I saw a while back from a newspaper, maybe it was the Washington Post, but you could put in your name, um, or not your name, your age, the county that you live in, and, and identify some very basic information about yourself. And then it essentially told you where you would end up in the priority. Um, and for myself, um, fortunately or unfortunately, I, I'm fairly well at the back of the list. And so um, I was told there were a couple of hundred million people in the U.S. in front of me. So probably some time before we see widespread availability of the vaccine. 
Um, I do see a question real quick about will the slides be available? And I think the answer is yes, just to make sure everybody sees it. We will post this presentation onto our COVID-19 task force page. Megan, will you go to the next slide for me? So before we talk about what employers can do in terms of mandating a vaccine for their own workforce, let's talk about whether it's likely that we're gonna see some type of a state, federal, local mandate. Because we've heard a lot of talk and there's, it's pretty much been buzzing everywhere as to whether we're gonna see a mandate. Um, a key member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force and Dr. Anthony Fauci have suggested that a federal or nationwide mandate is unlikely. Um, when you look at state and local mandates, similarly, we haven't seen anything yet, um, but we have seen folks like the New York State Bar has recommended um, that the state consider a mandatory vaccine. Um, also a little bit of a, uh, maybe the left hand not talking to the right in Virginia. Um, Virginia's health commissioner said he planned to make the vaccine mandatory. And then a state's per a spokesperson person for the state governor's office said that the governor had no plans to do so. And I tend to think that the likelihood of that happening is, is not very high. I mentioned here um, public schools and state and local mandates because um, there is a potential if you saw a really hot spot um, in a locality and, and you often see already for schools that many students are already required to have certain vaccines. As to students, these vaccines, though, aren't likely to be mandated in the short term. Um, the um, Pfizer vaccine was held up a little bit because they wanted to approve it for use for 16 and 17 year olds. Um, and it was ultimately, but, but there was some issue with that. But we haven't seen any vaccine approved for anybody under the age of 16. And the Moderna vaccine is solely limited to adults. So while public schools are already familiar with mandating vaccines um, and might in the future and down the road require a COVID vaccine, if the vaccinations develop, not, we're not gonna see one here in the short term. So we're sort of talking about whether or not um, you're gonna see a governmental entity make it mandatory, but that's not really why you're here. You really wanna know whether you can make it mandatory for your workforce. So I'm gonna turn it to Megan, who's gonna talk a little bit about that. Thanks, Carrie. Um, yeah, like Carrie said, probably the biggest question on everyone's mind today is, can employers make the vaccine mandatory? Um, and the answer is generally, yes, you can. And just yesterday, the EEOC confirmed in some updated guidance that it does not violate federal employment law for employers to require employees to get the COVID-19 vaccine. Of course, that's subject to some exemptions that Eric's gonna talk to us about um, later on in the presentation. And there's also press precedent from prior pandemics, including smallpox and H1N1, swine flu, when employers were given leeway to require vaccines. Um, and then the second biggest question you're probably asking is, should you make it mandatory? And the answer to that is going to be one you probably hear from your lawyers all the time, and that's, it depends. Um, with COVID-19 and the nature of the pandemic, um, you know, we're really venturing into unprecedented territory and you really need to consider the benefits and risks before requiring your employees to get vaccinated. And of course, you have to consider the reality. So the supply of doses right now is very limited. Um, like Carrie was talking about, only certain people are going to receive the first batches of the vaccine. And we probably won't see widespread availability until mid-2021. So that means that even if you want to make the vaccine mandatory today, you might not be able to do that or you're not going to be able to do that um, and implement it to your entire workforce unless your workforce happens to fall into one of those categories of folks who are going to be the first ones to receive it. So that's kind of a main consideration um, as it is right now. And Megan, if I may. Of course. One of um, the questions that we had already received, and again, we really do appreciate the questions. They, they make sure that we are covering what you want to hear, um, was addressing comments by Surgeon General Jerome Adams uh, just yesterday, where he was saying, right now, he doesn't think employers should be mandating the vaccine. Um, and wanted to address that. And right now, that's a timing issue on the Surgeon General's part. What he had said when you really delve into the comments is that 
it is approved for emergency use. And because of that, that means that the FDA and their independent scientists believe that the benefits of vaccinating people outweigh the risks. But he issued a reminder, uh, his lawyer probably got to him, and said, it's not been fully approved. That probably won't happen until 2021. So if you hear about that, I don't read the comments by the Surgeon General to be never require the vaccine as much as right now let's wait for final FDA approval. And a lot of what we're going to be talking about today, issues for today, what are you going to do you know, December 17? And then what are you going to do in January? What do you maybe want to do in March once the supply is out there and reaches um, levels where you could require it? So. Uh, I saw that comment, and uh, Carrie and I were both looking at that. I thought this was the right time to bring it up. So, uh, and, and, Megan, I apologize for the interruption. I will turn it back over to you. Well, and I want to just add in to Eric's point there, um, following up on um, the Surgeon General's warning, looking at um, healthcare systems who are, in fact, in possession of vaccines as we speak and are vaccinating their workforce. Um, I, I looked at an article from Carillion. Um, in Virginia and um, both the Duke and UNC health systems in North Carolina. And there is no health system known in Virginia or North Carolina. And I believe also in the other states in our footprint that have mandated the vaccine for their healthcare workers. And I certainly think that since those healthcare workers have been prioritized as the first receivers of the vaccine, the lack of a mandate from, from the healthcare industry, I think is a fairly telling um, it's sort of telling us to where we're at today. It's not telling us to where we'll be at next month or, or later on in 2021. Thanks, guys. Um, and we will talk about some reasons why you may want to require the vaccines. Um, and that is obviously just to resume normal operations to the extent possible. And of course, that doesn't mean once you're vaccinated, just you know take your mask off, quit social distancing. Um, actually, the CDC has said that there is not enough information currently available to say if or when it will stop recommending that people wear masks and avoid close contact with others. Um, they need to understand more about the protection that COVID-19 vaccines provide before making that decision. Um, and of course, other factors include how many people get vaccinated, um, how the virus spreads in communities. That's also going to affect that decision, um, the more information that becomes available. So when we say resume normal operations, you know, we mean to the extent possible to resume normal operations. And of course, that would be a benefit to requiring your workforce to be vaccinated. Um, and also just generally providing a safer workplace. Um, and then the riskiness of your industry. So what I mean by that is healthcare workers and those who are in long-term healthcare facilities and who are at a higher risk of developing COVID-19. I mean, you want to consider the risks of your industry itself. And that includes not only employers or persons of a higher risk, but also employers whose employees work in direct contact with high-risk populations. So they may have, um, you know, different considerations when deciding whether or not to implement the vaccine, kind of like what Carrie and Eric were just talking about. Um, and it is worth noting that under OSHA and many state laws, employers are obligated to provide a workplace free from serious recognized hazards. So that means that employers have the right to establish legitimate health and safety standards and policies as long as they're job related, consistent with business necessity, etc. Um, and a policy requiring vaccinations will depend heavily on the employer's industry and their physical location. As of now, OSHA has not said what role a COVID-19 vaccine plays in that. Um, but experts, like Carrie said, don't anticipate um, right now that there will be federal mandates or state mandates, and we don't know whether or not the agency will require employers to mandate vaccination. Um, so some reasons why you may not want to um, implement a vaccine mandate, of course, the first one is just going to be HR backlash. So we have seen sort of a high level of distrust of the vaccine just simply because it is um, through the emergency use authorization and hasn't went through the entire FDA approval process. We've seen some people, you know, kind of skeptical about taking the vaccine and implementing a vaccine mandate may cause some backlash there. Um, and you also want to think about the potential risk of future liability. So this being such a new vaccine, we don't know the long-term effects. Um, we won't know that for a really long time. Um, of course, those claims will likely be limited to potential workers' compensation claims. Um, but, you know, that is something that we want to consider. 
Um, and if you are interested in reading about some COVID litigation that we have already seen throughout the year, we do have some articles available on our task force website. Those are called Unprecedented, and we've just tracked um, all kinds of COVID-19 litigation from all areas of law. And those are really interesting because we've seen a lot of things pop up that, you know, we not necessarily would have thought that we would. Um, and here you see a chart. This is um, a November 2020 Gallup poll, and this shows that only 63% of surveyed Americans say they are willing to receive the COVID-19 vaccination. So that leaves 37% of people unwilling to receive it. Um, what we know now is that you do need a critical mass of people, which will probably be around 70%, having received the vaccine in order to develop what is called herd immunity. Um, so that means for the vaccine itself to be effective, um, you know, for the entire population. Um, and like we already talked about, a vaccine mandate could be unpopular and present a cultural challenge with people who oppose the vaccination and don't want to take it, but don't necessarily fall into one of the exemption categories that we're going to talk about. So um, that's something to remember. And I think, Carrie, did you want to add something um, on this as well? I, I do. I have. I, we actually have, um, we've gotten a question and we have gotten... Um, We've gotten a couple of questions, so I want to address one of those. And I actually wanted to make a, a, just a quick note about the slide um, that Megan just showed you in terms of um, the 63 and 37%. Um, that was a poll done in, in November. There's a more recent poll from December that suggests some level of changing sentiment regarding the vaccine. I actually think it's fairly consistent with this former Gallup poll, but what it says is that approximately 80% of Americans would consider the vaccine. When you break that down though, only 40% of Americans are willing to get the vaccine today. The other 40% indicate that they might be willing to get it later on when more is known about the vaccine. And we have gotten a question um, that, that asks about the risk of liability to a retail operation if a customer comes into their to their retail operations and, and then claims that they got the COVID-19 vaccination from one of our employees. I think a couple of things to that. I really think that reality here and the slide that Megan reviewed on reality has to carry the day. Um, you know, the, the statistics in North Carolina, which is where this, this client is primarily located, show that it's not likely to be until um, not the first quarter in 2021 when you could get your hands on a mandatory vaccine. And so that's really just going to mean that even if you wanted to vaccinate your whole workforce, you really can't do that today. Number two, even if you could vaccinate your workforce, um, you probably still are going to see masks and other social distancing measures in the workforce for a while. Um, because you are going to have people who can't get the vaccine for the reasons that Eric's going to talk about a little bit more. Um, on top of that, um, you're not going to necessarily fully be able to avoid transmitting it without still having these social distancing measures. I think that the quote that Eric sent me before um, suggested that the CDC is not prepared to tell you when you might be able to get rid of these masks and other measures. So, I think the risk of liability to an employer who is um, complying with other social distancing, um, mask wearing, cleaning type guidelines, I think your risk of liability is low, particularly I would say over the next six or eight months if you don't choose to um, enforce or mandate a vaccine. Thanks, Carrie. Okay, so you're probably wondering if you do implement um, a mandatory vaccine policy, how do you enforce that? Um, and you have to be prepared to discipline or terminate employees who do not agree to take the vaccine. Of course, that is unless they're um, subject to an exemption. Um, you have to have some kind of policy in place. You can't just start um, you know, disciplining or terminating employees. There needs to be something written that your employees can see. Um, and of course, if you do decide to do that, you can contact your council to work through a policy that best fits your business needs. Um, but that is something to consider. And I think we had a couple of questions come through. Did you guys get those? Yeah, I did. And what I would just say on this is um, I think that employers on this call really need to think through long and hard about um, as we sit here today, terminating your workforce for refusing to get a vaccine that has only been authorized on an emergency basis.
I think there are a lot of questions and, and we're going to talk a little later on some steps that you can take to, to sort of educate your workforce, but, but, but you really have to be prepared to, to take action against your employees if they're not willing to get a vaccine and they aren't governed by one of the exemptions recognized under the law. And um, so one of the questions kind of relates to this about um, getting proof. Yes, um, you, you should get proof. And I think we also have a slide on that a little bit later. Um, but more importantly, how will this impact your requirements for PPE? Um, I think you're still gonna have to wear PPE. Um, unless you had um, a, a whole workforce that was potentially vaccinated and you weren't customer facing and likely to come into contact with others, you probably still are going to need some PPE. Eric, do you have any? Do you have well, any? And here's what I would say to that. Thank you, Carrie. Um, bear in mind that what the vaccine is going to do is allowing our bodies to defend itself, to fight the virus while it is in you know, our system. What it doesn't do is really change the viral load. I mean, it may stop people from becoming extraordinarily sick. Hopefully it will. That's the whole point. Um, but individuals will still have the virus in their system. They will and still be shedding the virus. And so that is why the CDC is taking the stance that you know, vaccines are great. They are fully encouraging them. Uh, and, and so are we. But they are not saying once you are vaccinated, throw off the mask, stop social distancing, because they want to see how we get a handle on the spread of the virus to individuals who you know aren't vaccinated how effective it is they want to see all of that so the cdc is still taking the stance uh, and i think you know, reasonably so as if they care what an attorney would say about their medical opinions hey let's see where we are but let's keep doing the good fight um by the social distancing, the frequent hand washing, the wearing of a face covering. So even if you get somebody that is vaccinated, they, they show you their form and they're like, I'm not wearing my mask anymore. You, the answer is no, you're still wearing the face covering at work until medical advice tells us that it is safe to remove them. Thanks, Eric. And if we haven't given you enough bad reasons um, to, to, to think long and hard about uh, mandating a vaccine, and I really do think that down the road, that's going to be a very interesting question for employers that you're going to be making on a case-by-case -case basis. How forward-facing is your business? How bad is your um, uh, absenteeism issues? Um, you know, do you want to be a restaurant that advertises our entire staff is vaccinated? That may be a good thing. But again, we're probably talking a few months down the road. So um, with that, that caveat once again stated, if you're unionized, well, mandating a vaccine is going to be a mandatory subject of bargaining, which means you're going to be getting down and reopening the CBA or discussing the policy with your employees and with the union. And you may not want to open that particular can of worms. That's going to depend on you know, your relationship with your union, some are functional and healthy and a lot aren't. But even if you don't have a union, another thing that you really need to bear in mind, and it hasn't been a huge issue during the Trump administration, but that changes in a month and three days. The National Labor Relations Act covers everybody, unionized or non-unionized. And so if you get a group of employees who are opposed to the vaccine for whatever reason, and we'll talk about medical and religious reasons in down the road, just a couple minutes, that's protected concerted activity under the National Labor Relations Act. And they're allowed to protest in that way. And I would say if you get a group of people bringing you a petition saying we refuse to be vaccinated, you know, work with counsel on the best way to respond, you might be able to tell them, fine, if you've got a mandate in place, well, don't come to work. You know, we're going to put you on a leave of absence. You have volunteered to do an unpaid leave of absence. But what you can't do is discipline them in some way. You can't 
fire them or anything like that for engaging in concerted protected activity. Now, again, that's going to really depend on your individual circumstance. So I would say, you know, that's probably a circumstance if you get that petition, reach out to, to trusted counsel and make sure that you follow the rules properly. All right. We're down the road. The Surgeon General has now said, you know what? We are fully approving these vaccines. You have the go ahead. You have made the internal decision. We think the benefits outweigh the risks. We're going to mandate everybody get the vaccine, no exceptions. It's not quite that easy. There are mandatory accommodations that you need to make for individuals who are expressing either a religious objection or have a disability problem, have some sort of medical reason that they cannot be vaccinated. And so you're going to have to establish accommodation procedures with that mandate. No getting around that. That's in place for the flu vaccine. That's been in place for prior vaccinations. The EEOC has maintained, even during this pandemic, no, those accommodations are still required. Let's first take a look at the ADA, and that is somebody that has a medical condition. Perhaps it is an allergy to one of the components in the vaccine. Perhaps they have had a bad reaction to vaccinations in the past. Um, you're going to have to honor that. Now, you're going to have to work on a reasonable accommodation for the employee. Um, and because we have been allowing people to work, you know, in a masked up, there is probably a reasonable accommodation, perhaps having somebody do some telework. We're going to go into that in, in just a minute. But you're going to have to, um, to honor that. Now, you are allowed to get information because it's the interactive process through the Americans with Disabilities Act. And so all of those standard rules are going to apply. You've been in that situation before. You've all accommodated somebody for some medical reason. It's the same process, but you're going to you know, get the medical information. What is the accommodation we need to give? What is the reason? Don't get into details, but I mean, you can get a, it's an allergic reaction. It's a something um, enough to be able to establish a conversation about the interactive process and about developing the proper accommodation. The other issue, and one that sometimes people forget, there's a possibility of a religious exemption. And we often think about that sometimes in the clothing that our employees wear. We sometimes address it in the concept of making sure that employees that honor the Sabbath are getting that day off and you will have that obligation. Well, an individual who has a sincerely held religious belief opposed to a vaccination is going to trigger a need for a conversation on what is the proper accommodation. Now, a couple things to bear in mind on the religious exemption. First, the EEOC does not want you delving into the merits of an individual's religion. And I think we can all say that is going to be a briar patch that none of us want to be going down. Is this a legitimate religion? Is this real? Is it, that's a silly belief system. No, we're not, we're not doing that. Now, um, if it is sincerely held, it is sufficient. Doesn't mean you just have to accept somebody saying, I have a religious objection. You can do a little bit of digging. Well, what is the objection? What is it based on? Can I get a letter um, from your pastor? But that can't be the only thing. Or, you know, Will you have you know friends that will back you up? Or there's some written materials that I can look at. Um, and again, you can't just be, I need the head of your church or your pastor or whatever, the head of your, your place of worship to give me a letter because it's a sincerely held religious belief. It's not an organized religion. One person can be enough. But in those circumstances, you're still allowed to get some sort of backup. The other thing is going to be that an undue hardship under the religious exemption is different, it's lower. It's basically, once it is a de minimis cost on you, you don't have to honor it. Now, again, if your accommodation can be telework and you've been allowing people to telework, you may have to have a real lengthy conversation on that. If it's just continuing to wear a face covering, um, you know, you're gonna probably have to have a real lengthy conversation about that. Now, the key for both of these is what I have long called the get-out-of-jail-free card 
on ADA claims and religious discrimination claims, and that's the interactive process. And that's having a meaningful conversation with the employee. Tell me what accommodation you want. Take a look at that. Now, importantly, doesn't mean you have to give the employee the accommodation that he or she requests. It's just a matter of, I need to listen, I need to consider, and I need to think about, is there a way that I can accommodate you? And then making that offer available. And a lot of employees forget. They seem to be under the impression, I get the accommodation I requested, and that's not it. They get a reasonable accommodation. And perhaps that reasonable accommodation is teleworking. Perhaps that a reasonable accommodation, as I've said a couple of times, is, well, you got to continue to wear the face covering. Even when the CDC says all of my vaccinated folks don't have to, you still need to. Maybe it's a leave of absence. I don't know. I mean, you know, it's something you're going to have to explore with the individual um, that is making the request for accommodation. Now, one place that I often tell people to look, I look at a lot, I use it, is the Job Accommodation Network, um, and that's askjan.org. Federal website, but there's a lot of useful information, and it's helpful in helping you brainstorm ideas on accommodations because they're all so fact-specific and so fact-intensive. So if you are in the HR field, if you are dealing with employees, um, dealing with ADA issues, I would tell you, bookmark that website. You're going to use it not just on the issue of uh, vaccinations, but you're going to use it all the time in dealing with ADA issues. All right. Um, We've given you some bad information. Karen, I wanted to turn things over for uh, maybe some options that you would have. Yeah, but before we get to those, I, I, I'm going to um, put you on the spot here. We've gotten a question. Um, it, I tend to think, and um, you know, maybe maybe you would agree, that with the just the real disagreements that people have about vaccinations and whether or not to get them. Um, I guess I won't be surprised to see um, uh, a lot of people coming to their employers if you do mandate, mandate a vaccine and claim that they need some type of an accommodation. And so um, when it comes to sort of trying to get um, information about an allegedly sincerely held religious belief, can you kind of break down sort of, you know, what you can and can't have? I mean, for what I always think of is that the big thing is, is you can't assume that they have a preacher or they have a pastor because some religions don't have those. Or yeah, although I will say I like to start with that. Agreed. Uh, I mean, and th that is a great place to start the conversation. Well, can the pastor, the reverend of your church, give me a letter explaining just what this is? It doesn't need to be war and peace. Um, that that's a great place to start. But you know, and I really appreciate Megan for pointing out a couple of interesting cases where the EEOC and federal courts have said, "Great, but it doesn't need to just be an organized religion." So what they're looking at there is, all right. Do you have friends that can attest that this is your religious belief, that you have sincerely held it for a period of time? Is it based on any sort of a writing? If so, can you provide that writing? Uh, I would say, and it sounds like I'm just trying to drive work for attorneys, and I'm not, but if you get somebody who is unable to provide any of that information, but is still saying, I have a sincerely held religious belief, it may be time to work with someone to determine, all right, is that so weak that it's, I don't have evidence of a sincerely held religious belief. And again, I'm saying this in the context of the EEOC does not want to go down that path because as an agency of the federal government and honoring the First Amendment, they don't want to be deciding what is a valid way to worship and what is not. So you know, I would say you somebody has to get you some support, some you know, attestation from neighbors, from friends, from family. Um, you know, why do you have this sincerely held? What is it based on? Uh, and if they can't answer that question, they probably have failed to meet the test of a sincerely held religious belief. But I would be very careful to go down that road. The other thing that I would sort of follow up on that is I think Eric emphasized it really well is the interactive process, um, which is really to talk to that employee. Um, and in that interactive process and talking about their religious accommodation needs, 
I think that trying to better understand where they're coming from matters. I think understanding what it is that they want, and I don't mean what they want, which is not to have a vaccine. I mean, what is their issue? What is their objection? Because remember, from the religious accommodation standpoint, the standard is only de minimis. So it may be very easy for you to say either A, it is not hard for us to make some type of an accommodation based upon the nature of their position, or it's impossible. And so without having to fight about whether or not something is sincerely held, look at what the end game is and how easy or not easy it is for you to do that. Because ultimately that inquiry is far more black and white than whether someone truly believes what they claim to believe in. Hey, Carrie, I saw a couple of questions. I'm gonna to touch on real quick before I turn this back over to you for options. Uh, one of them is an option. The website that I referenced, I think this is the question, ask, Jan, A-S-K-J-A-N dot org. That's the Job Accommodation Network. Really useful website. Every HR professional should be aware of that website. Um, the other, and this is probably an option, uh, Carrie, for you to consider, does it have to be an across the board vaccine mandate? Or can I pick and choose, perhaps my customer facing positions will get a vaccine, mandated vaccine, at some point down the road when I know there is a supply um, or in some other way of breaking it down? Does it have to be all employees? Well, that's interesting. If you look at the slide here, you know, one of the recommendations that we would make is if you are considering a mandate, make sure that there are going to be enough doses available to your employees first. What's the point of creating a potential issue with your workforce when you can't get what you want to make an issue to begin with? Um, and once Let's they just assume, sorry, magically, here. Um, December 18th, we've got all the vaccine we ever want. Do you want to maybe consider breaking it down by job title or job I function? Do. Um, and I, I don't even, I, don't, I, I would suggest breaking it down in multiple ways. Um, you know, because folks are receiving a vaccine, there have been, um, there's been quite a bit of evidence that folks do have some mild symptoms as a result. Um, so, you know, my recommendation would be A, to think about a phased approach, just in general, identifying who in your workforce would, would want, you would want to get it in an order of priority. But then I would break down within that order of priority and I would phase it in within that group. So for example, if you are a credit union, I probably would not vaccinate one whole branch all in one day. The reason I say that is, is if they all turn around the next day and have um, some negative reactions, you may not have anybody working at your branch. Um, so, you know, you might not want to do your whole IT department at one time, if that means they may all run the risk of being out. So I think a phased approach makes sense because A, it reflects reality in terms of enough doses, um, and B, it allows you to really identify who in your organization should be the priority. Um, I think that when you do that, I would suggest that you at least um, pay some attention to the um, protected classes within your organization, um, ensure that you don't run some sort of a risk of a claim of discrimination, um, and, and it is possible, I think, particularly with the data that shows that certain racial groups are being affected by COVID more than other races. I would suggest that you at least take a look at that and, and make sure that you have documented and reflected the reasons um, that you are going to phase it in in the manner in which you are going to phase it in. Um, the other reason, I, we talked about it a little bit more, but I think that one of the other reasons um, that you would want to consider making it optional versus mandatory is some of the statistics that I talked to you about before. An additional 40% of the population is open to the idea of a vaccine. Right now, you have time available to you to encourage and incentivize your employees to want to get the vaccine. So I think we're talking more of the carrot versus the stick here. And so Megan, if you'll go to the next slide, um, when you're thinking about how you're gonna do this, uh, are you gonna offer it free of charge? Um, how are you going to distribute it? And, and in some ways, how you're going to distribute it is going to depend on the vaccine. 
So for example, the Pfizer vaccine must be kept in, in very cold storage. So that means it can only be located at certain places. But how are you gonna offer it? I would suggest, and I think Eric and Megan would join me in this suggestion, that there is a lot of information out there on the internet, on social media, uh, that people have available to them, and it's not always accurate. And, you know, there's a lot of fear. I was about to go, don't trust social media, but then you backed it up. It's not that. Just assume anything you read on social media is the opposite of the truth. Um, but there's a lot of fear out there. Um, and, you know, something that's a non-issue becomes an issue very quickly on social media. And I think that you would be well served unless your industry is truly one that is at very high risk. You would be well served to make sure that your workforce is as comfortable as they can be with the process and the outcomes, because, you know, there is some risk. There have been um, cases in the past involving um, other types of vaccinations where employers have sued or employees have sued. Um, it's generally been dealt with as a workers' comp claim, um, but you can avoid a lot of that by educating your workforce and making sure that that you've addressed their concerns. One of the other things that I think is really effective. Educating your workforce is a vital part of either encouraging or mandating a vaccine. And that's something you can get on front of today um, and, and, and information from the CDC on, on the value and reminding people yeah, it's an emergency use authorization, but again, they wouldn't have given that if the uh, FDA didn't consider the benefits of the vaccines to outweigh the, the possible risks. And Eric, don't you think that, that that education process is something that must occur before you mandate it? Oh, I think it's got to occur right now. Yeah. Because, you know, I you think because even if you decide, you know, the vaccine fairy has delivered enough vaccines and I think I need to vaccinate. I need to require it because I am in a forward facing industry. Um, you know, I'm, I'm in healthcare, I'm a long-term nursing home. I'm in a position where I think it is for the benefit of the business, for everybody, for the public. Um, you don't want to, you want people to be in the right frame of mind to accept that. And so, yeah, I think educating now is critical if you are going to even go with the in, encouragement, just that's going to be the plan. I want to encourage everybody to get it. Well, part of that is going to be why. Here's the explanation. Here's the benefits. I also think that just, you know, showing people in your organization trusting the vaccine is a great way to help develop that trust. Um, you know, presidents, um, pre former presidents Bush, Obama and Clinton have all agreed to take the vaccine on video. I think steps like that that encourage, um, I, I think they encourage a little bit of trust. Um, but I also think that just them getting stabbed in the arm with a needle twice isn't really going to be the test. It's going to be making sure that, that, that they're still in a, in a good physical condition in the month or so after. And, and that's really going to be the key to people thinking, you know what, this isn't that bad. Almost everybody's had a shot at some point. So just watching them get um, stabbed in the arm probably isn't sufficient to create that level of trust. Um, we have a question here about whether we create or, or, or violate a key provision from the EEOC if we um, only select certain groups of employees for a vaccine requirement. And I think that the question becomes, why did you select that group? For example, if you selected only African-Americans, yes, I think you probably have a pretty problematic issue for you. If you selected a group in your organization because based upon their job duties, based upon who they interact with, based upon their risk of exposure, you believe that that's the group that needs to um, uh, be vaccinated. I don't think that that runs the same level of risk um, with the EEOC so long as the determination you are making on a job requirement is one that is job related and consistent with business necessity. And so I certainly think that you have the ability to make that kind of a phased approach um, depending on your workforce. Um, and so another question that we've gotten is, can you mandate the vaccine for remote workers when there isn't the opportunity for on-site distribution? I certainly think that if, if the route an employer chooses to go is to mandate the vaccine, you need to think through how that's going to work. And quite frankly, at this stage, I don't know that we all have a clear view on how that is going to work. Um, as I understand the process, um, what has happened thus far is the vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine has been distributed to hospitals who have sufficient on-site cold storage. 
And then CVS and Walmart, CVS and Walgreens pharmacies are um, liaisoning with long-term care facilities to help sign them up for the vaccine. And so um, I don't know that many employers are truly in the short term going to be in a position to do necessarily on-site distribution of um, the Pfizer vaccine. Um, whether or not that would be possible with Moderna, um, something to consider. You know, for example, at Spillman, um, we have someone in our Winston office, um, we have nurses who come in from Wake Forest Baptist Health and do on-site flu shots. Um, you know, the employer makes, they don't mandate it, but they make it, you know, easy peasy for me to get my flu shot. And, and thinking of ways that you can make that process easy is I think really what we're trying to focus on when we talked about making them free of charge or on-site distribution. Um, you are gonna wanna make sure you're thinking about um, some of the protected health information. And, and Megan's gonna touch on that in, in just a minute, but I think that whether they're remote workers and I think whether or not they are um, in the office day to day, if you choose to mandate the vaccine, you're just gonna wanna have a plan in place um, for how that would happen and, and how you're going to direct employees to get that done. So in addition to considering whether or not to make it mandatory versus optional, um, you can use the carrot or the stick. Um, I think that you know we have some recommendations on some pretty good carrots that Eric's gonna talk to you about. I think it's important to remember the, the wellness program guidelines that are out there. Um, and we may have forgotten about those, but there are uh, limits. We're still waiting for some more guidance from the EEOC on the latest on these. But a vaccine program or even an encouragement of a vaccine with some sort of benefit is going to fall within the uh, confines of a wellness program. And so you know, there are things you can do on gift cards or giveaways, maybe an extra PTO day, but bear in mind that what you are doing is going to have to be, again, voluntary. So I'd be very careful, and I'd recommend against, um, some sort of policy that says, and if we get to X number of people vaccinated, then we're going to give everybody an extra PTO day, because now you've sort of gone from voluntary, I'm making the decision for myself, to where I'm easily going to be intimidated or coerced into doing something maybe I don't want to do. So it's definitely make it a one-on-one -on -one decision. Definitely make sure that the incentives are, are limited. The, one, if you're giving away money, you're going to run into wage and hour type issues, factoring it into any overtime. Um, but also there are limits on what a wellness program can uh, give away uh, before it becomes coercive. Uh, and, and again, that's the latest from, from HIPAA, and we're waiting for new updated EEOC guidance. But, you know, I'd be thinking in terms of a day of PTO, um, a gift card or something like that. But again, you want to keep it reasonably small in order um, to avoid the gaze uh, of the EEOC. Uh, and one of the issues is that if it is a truly... Um, some types of wellness programs actually require the ability to have an alternative mechanism. Well, I'm not sure what the alternative for a vaccination would be, um, but that may be something where, again, you're going to need to be prepared if somebody comes to you and says, hey, this is, you know, I want my alternative mechanism for qualifying for this benefit. I think these are largely what they call participatory wellness programs, so you would be okay, but Again, don't let that completely catch you uh, out of the blue. If somebody comes in and says, I want my alternative, that's because that is built into the regulation somewhere, and that person probably knows a plaintiff's lawyer, so be careful about that. Um, there are a lot of issues as far as, you know, what do you do with the proof? What do you do with PHI? I mean, we had a question, should we administer this uh, vaccine directly or only through a third-party provider? And as Megan's going to go into some of the issues as far as the documentation, I would definitely say you don't want to be the ones administering the vaccine. You want that to be in the hands of a professional for all sorts of liability reasons, um, all sorts of reasons right now, because only medical providers are going to have access to the necessary equipment, but also because there are questions involved in the process, and you want those to be asked by a third party and not by you. 
But um, again, you want to turn things over? Yeah. Eric, just to clarify, right? The difference where we talk about on-site distribution, that would always still be done by a third party. Unless, I guess, hypothetically, unless you were a medical provider who is trained to do that. There's a difference between having it done on-site, like setting up a flu shot back, like a uh, fair, versus um, you actually administering it. And we, I don't think we would ever recommend that you all be the ones actually giving the vaccine. Unless you're a healthcare facility and doing that anyway, I agree 100%. Right. So one of the final things that we wanted to touch on, and I think we had gotten this question um, before, is asking for proof of vaccination, especially as that relates to um, whether or not HIPAA or protected health information um, is implicated. So asking for proof of vaccination just on its face is not a disability related inquiry. And um, like we said, the EEO issued some guidance just yesterday. Um, and it didn't really change much, but kind of reinforced what we were already thinking. Um, and one of the things they addressed was whether or not requiring an employee to show proof of receipt of the COVID-19 vaccination is a disability-related inquiry. And they said that it's not. Um, but of course, those questions that may follow after you ask, well, did you get the vaccine? Can you give me proof of the vaccine? Um, those subsequent questions may implicate, um, you know, a disability. So if you say, well, why didn't you get it? Um, tell me why you didn't get it. Show me proof why you didn't get it. Those types of questions may, um, you know, implicate a, an employee's potential disability. So um, what the EEOC recommended is just to obviously avoid asking disability-related questions um, by sending the employees to pharmacies or their own personal healthcare providers. Um, and also just warning employees when you ask them not to provide protected health information with their proof of vaccination. Um, you know, you can just tell them, you know, I, I need a proof of vaccination, but make sure you don't provide me with any health information. Just give me proof of the vaccination. Um, as far as HIPAA goes, um, most group health plans are subject to HIPAA privacy rules because they are covered entities. Um, but under HIPAA, there are three types of covered entities. That's health plans, um, of which most group, group health plans are a part, healthcare providers, and clearinghouses. Um, employers by themselves don't fit in with any of those categories, so they are not subject to those HIPAA privacy rules. Um, of course, HIPAA may be implicated if the employers decide to offer the vaccine as part of their covered health plan. Um, so if they decide to do that, then HIPAA privacy rules govern the use and disclosure of that protected health information, or PHI. Um, of course, HIPAA rules exempt employment records from the definition of PHI. But if you do decide to go, you do decide to mandate the vaccine and you decide to provide that as part of your covered health plan, then you need to consider HIPAA. Um, there is another thing to consider. And again, we don't know that the, the guidance is changing every single day, um, but it is a consideration that the Federal Department of Health and Human Services has said that flu shot clinics may be part of a workplace wellness program. Um, like Eric was saying, you probably don't want to administer those on site. Um, but if it's somehow as part of a flu shot or a, a vaccine clinic, um, that type of information as a workplace wellness program may not be protected by HIPAA. Um, just in any case, I would say proof of vaccination, um, and I don't know if you, Eric and Carrie, agree with me, but any kind of information you receive from an employee that, um, you know, is in the realm of vaccines or anything, I would keep in a separate medical folder. Um, just as you're supposed to do under the ADA, um, keep any kind of medical records or anything from an employee, um, you know, related to that in a separate folder on its own. Would you guys agree with that? Absolutely. I mean, you know, you're going to treat these, this documentation as you would any other, um, you know, medical documentation that you receive from the employee. You know, I recommend that you keep it in that sort of sectioned off from the regular employment file. There's no reason not to. There's no reason that anybody looking at someone's disciplinary record um, really needs to see their proof of vaccination um, in the normal course. So, yeah, absolutely. I just saw a question that went back to what I had covered, and I apologize if I rambled too much. If you're talking about a gift card in the $25, $50 range, I'm good with it. If you start talking about gift cards or of uh, you know a couple hundred dollars, or you know giving people a bonus of a you know $250. Uh, for getting vaccinated, I'm going to start losing a lot of sleep. 
right? And one of the biggest things to take away um, from today is that we are in unprecedented times. Um, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic is, you know, certainly unprecedented. You need to be prepared and take it day by day. Because like I said, the guidance keeps changing. Um, you know, we keep getting updates and that's something that needs to be followed um, pretty closely as employers, you know, federal laws, um, state laws. Um, there are most states, I believe, have um, like draft vaccine plans on like distribution and phased approaches. That's something you can consider. Um, but just keep that in mind that, you know, the CDC, the EEOC, um, different agencies will probably continue to issue um, updated guidance. And so um, the, the next slide is going to, I think, ask, right, if people have questions. And so what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to throw out um, a couple of questions that, that we um, have received that Pamela has forwarded to us that I don't know that we, we got over the course of this presentation. Um, the first is um, the question asked if, if we assume that meatpacking plants are considered high risk. I believe the answer to that is yes. Does anybody disagree? Going once, going twice. That makes sense to me. <laughs> um, the next question is, is, you know, Eric, I'm going to throw this one to you. Um, if you're an employer who doesn't mandate the flu vaccine, is it okay to mandate a COVID one? Uh, there's no reason why you couldn't. And I think that uh, we are in a different circumstance with COVID than we are necessarily with the flu. I mean, <sighs> These terms are going to start getting us down a bad political path, and I don't want to go there. But uh, yeah, this ain't the flu, and this is uh, you know shut down the world since March. So I think taking a different tact is reasonable and defensible. Um, although certainly, if you've been offering you know flu shots, it makes sense that you would also require this, or but mandating a flu shot it makes sense that you would also mandated COVID shot. And I would add on to this, just as sort of an aside, and, and we may have touched on this earlier, but the, you know, the COVID-19 has been declared a direct threat by the EEOC. So it, it says that it satisfies that direct threat standard that we see being part of the consideration uh, on multiple tests for discrimination and accommodations that the EEOC passes. The flu does not fall into that um, same bucket. So they are different both in reality and how you may want to treat a vaccine to the extent one exists. Um, just trying to make sure that we have read through um, all of these questions. And I think that we have. Um, so unless other folks have um, questions that we haven't gotten a chance to answer, um, thank you for being with us today. Um, appreciate you taking the time at lunch. Um, it looks like we are going to finish right on time at one o'clock. Um, at the end of the presentation, you'll see um, all of our contact information, the link to our COVID-19 task force resource page. Um, a lot of great and free materials there that you are welcome and encouraged to look at. But if any of us can answer any questions for you that you may have about COVID or about your workforce issues, please feel free to reach out. And I think we've gotten one late question. That's an interesting question. I'd be interested to know. So we've gotten a question that says that two states where this employer operates um, has received a request um, whether they want to receive vaccinations to distribute to their employees. Um, and they've reached out to some third party providers who tell them they don't have enough personnel to do this. And it seems like a catch 22. Um, I agree it's a catch 22. Um, because you cannot give a vaccine unless you are medically authorized to do so. That I cannot stress enough that no one should be doing that. Um, and so if you are someone who needs someone to get the vaccine, um, I guess I'm a, I, I would think that, that would be something that you would want to follow up with the state with um, in terms of whether they would be distributed. Are they going to send those vaccines to a CVS on your behalf? How is that going to work? And sort of explaining, I mean, the clear implication is you can't do it yourself and you have to have somebody do it. So how is the state envisioning that would occur? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm saying right now those vaccines are precious and I wouldn't necessarily give up the right to receive them if you can. But I agree with Carrie 100%. You, you don't want to be the ones administering them. 
Again, unless you happen to be a healthcare institution. But I would absolutely, um, I, I would continue to kick the can down on the road uh, in terms of your right to have those. I think um, Eric's right. I think if you give it up, it may be hard to ask for it again later. Um, but again, guys, thank you so much for your time and attention. And please feel free to contact us if you have any questions about today's presentation or anything else. Thank you.